This is the National Medicine Symposium from the Canberra National Convention Centre. This session is titled Clinical and Cultural Competence in a Fast-Changing World. Our first speaker in this session is Professor Lisa Jackson-Pulver. Lisa is Pro-Vice-Chancellor Engagement and Pro-Vice-Chancellor Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Leadership, Western Sydney University. Lisa is a Wiradjuri woman, I hope I've got that correct, a Wiradjuri woman, whose traditional roots lie in a beautiful forested region of southwestern New South Wales, a gorgeous area, but whose life, or most of her life, has indeed been spent in urban Sydney. Would you please welcome Professor Lisa Jackson-Pulver. Good afternoon, everybody. It's a, a fabulous day. Um, first and foremost, of course, I, I have to pay my respects to the Ngunnawal people on whose country we've got the pleasure and honour of being able to spend some time with each other. Uh, the Ngunnawal people are, uh, of course, the, the owners, the custodians of this place, um, and they are very, very strong and significant elders who care for country and I suppose to care for country that is the nation's capital as well as a, a particular uh, role of import, so thank you. Um, so I always like to offer this map. I'm aware that many of you have probably seen that. It offers a little bit of diversity of our great nation. We have well over 300 different groups that belong to this land called Australia today. Uh, each of these groups are very, very different with their own cultures, their own norms, their own spiritual processes, dances, ceremonies, songs. Um, and uh, we are just as different here in Australia uh, across our great nation as uh, any other nation on earth uh, or a continental group of nations such as Europe. So I'm going the wrong way now. Okay, that way. This is National Reconciliation Week. So we started off with Sorry Day a few days ago and uh, we're right in the middle of it. So it's particularly... Um, you know, uh, I've, I'm very much feeling the love here uh, to be here to talk about such important matters during Reconciliation Week. And the theme of this week is don't keep history a mystery. So I thought I might just do a little bit of a dance through some history for you and uh, give you some uh, ideas and uh, hopefully uh, a little bit of an understanding of what um, sometimes drives us into uh, the work that we do. Um, Rec Week starts with Sorry Day, and that, of course, was a couple of days ago. And these are some beautiful badges that were made some years ago uh, and that got shared around. Um, and there's now hundreds and hundreds of uh, different ways of recognising Sorry Day and how people uh, acknowledge that to each other and to us. I'm here to talk a little bit about um, what challenges we face uh, in the modern world. Uh, everything is changing, that's one thing that's absolutely certain. But part of my talk today is uh, wanting to offer some insights into how we as a community of practice um, work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people so that we can together make the nation a much better place. So I'm gonna touch a little bit on history, a little bit on data, um, and a little bit around research and what that means and also offer a couple of thoughts for <clears throat> where to go to next. <clears throat> Forgive me, I've got a little bit of a lurgy at the moment. So, 
So I've got a few questions for you and we'll see if we can answer these at the end of the talk. The first is how do we as a community of practice work with Aboriginal people and draw on that knowledge in an appropriate way to make meaningful our practice? Second is how it is you think about your own history, your own ways, your own understanding when you um, work with people who are different um, to yourself culturally. And do you know where you can get stuff to help you when you do have those questions that perhaps you can't answer right now? So I'd like to start off with a, a, a brief tribute to Sister Alison Bush. She passed away a few years ago. Alison Bush was a remarkable midwife. She worked at the Prince Alfred Hospital, specifically in the King George V Pavilion, which was then a maternity hospital uh, in Sydney. She often got asked, Alison, where were you born? And she'd look them dead in the eye and she'd say, Royal North Shore Hospital. Because, mm -hmm. right. of course, people were expecting that she'd be saying something different. Well, she was evacuated. Well, her mum was evacuated with these twins in her belly from Groot Airland during the war. Um, and so that's how Alison ended up being in Sydney. But she was a remarkable midwife, and she became a midwife at a time when things were very different for Aboriginal people. We have lots of midwives now, thankfully. We have lots of nurses, lots of doctors and teachers, but, you know, it hasn't always been that way. And she trained at a time when it was very, very rare to have an Aboriginal person uh, in nursing. And in fact, um, in the early days when Alison was born, <clears throat> and her mother was a young woman, the only things we really saw about Aboriginal people were things like boomerangs and other icons. And this is a, a stamp back from around about 1930 that offers a, a presentation of that. It was a little bit later when people started talking about Aboriginal people and why it is, um, you know, they're so sick and despairing. And there was a policy in government in the day that basically said things like, let's look after the Aborigines, they're a dying race, let's soothe the dying pillow. And so the governments of the nation all got together and said, we need to deal with this as a problem. So this was at the beginning of Alison's lifetime. And then, of course, as time progressed, and I grew up in a household that had a whole stack of this sort of stuff lurking around, you know, these different ways of looking at Aboriginal people, but still, mainstream Australia hadn't really connected that we exist and that we are here and that we do stuff and that we can contribute apart from just a very few number of people. So, of course, in the 1960s, and we certainly know uh, the big story about the referendum, um, the 1960s was a great time of change and the 1970s was a great time of change. And we started to enumerate the number of people that were in Australia. We've always counted our Aboriginal population in this country, but usually in the early days it was for the purposes of excluding those numbers from the uh, national census of population of people. Uh, but since 1966, since we've been counting a little bit more accurately, we've been asking people, are you an Aboriginal person or are you a Torres Strait Islander person or in the old days, are you a native to this land? And we've seen the numbers of people who are choosing to disclose that they're Aboriginal is increasing. So if we go way back to 1788 and if we had a census collector on the day, the census collector probably would have counted anywhere between 750,000 to about 1.5 million Aboriginal people here in 1788. That's lots and lots of people. Today, we haven't quite reached those levels. Today, there's only about 700,000 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who choose to disclose that status on the census. So we still haven't quite reached where the population was in 1788. So the population's changed a lot. 
And of course, when the English and the British and the Europeans started coming to these shores, it was a very, very long time before there was um, the same populations across the two groups. But now Australia is a very, very different place. Today, we know that out of our 700,000 odd Aboriginal people, about 50% of them are aged 22 years and younger. And that contrasts with the mainstream Australian population whose average age is around about 38 years of age. We know that Aboriginal people still speak their languages uh, and that most of us speak some sort of Aboriginal English at home. Uh, we know that many of our people are learning and growing into language learning, as are a lot of uh, mainstream Australians, which is really exciting. But we do also know, and I heard a, a talk before about that funny thing called racism, Racism is one of those things that people do experience, and they experience it in the oddest of ways, and sometimes in the most, what you would think would be safe quarters, and that would include in things like health facilities, etc., schools. A third, over a third of Aboriginal people reported in the last 12 months that they feel as though um, they've been treated differently because of who they are and that they're Aboriginal. I often get asked who's an Aboriginal person, and we have very, very clear definitions about who is. Basically, you have to be of descent, so you have to be of a bloodline. Secondly, you need to self-identify that you're an Aboriginal person. And thirdly, you need to be accepted by the community in which you live, work, or where your people come from as being an Aboriginal person. And this is a bit of a process because we know that a lot of people are now starting to disclose that they have Aboriginal descent but have not necessarily been able to find that descent or trace that back to a particular community and start to understand where their place and role is in that. And so, in part, the numbers of people who are today identifying as Aboriginal, many of them have only recently come into that knowledge. Um, and that is one of the reasons why the population is growing by around about 18% per census, in between each census. So that is a significant proportion of people who are understanding their genealogy. Um, and that's a lot of people, I think, that are starting to journey home and find out who they are and where they belong. But identity is not an easy thing to try and work out. You know, the Commonwealth of Australia and all of our jurisdictions have got multiple ways of describing who's Aboriginal and who's not. And back in 2012, we, found, we did a quick audit of um, what various acts and legislations and statutory references say about who is and who isn't Aboriginal. And you can see from there the Commonwealth of Australia alone had 21 different ways of describing or including or excluding Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander people. So it's a complicated area. But for statistical purposes and for the purposes of most of our research and for the purposes of our hospital databases, etc., Indigenous status is simply a measure of whether or not a person identifies as Aboriginal um, or Torres Strait Islander. So they self-identify and they say, I'm of descent. It doesn't include the third part. And for those people who choose to um, identify that they are Aboriginal in the census, this is what the population pyramid looks like. And that's where we can start to see, you know, the 22 years is about the, you know, the mark where the median age is, and that's where, why we've got such a, a strong youthing population. Thankfully, the population's starting to extend. I remember in the 80s, a man called Puggy Hunter once said, it's a little bit hard to be an Aboriginal, he said, because by the time you reach 50, and he was reaching 50, he said 50% of us are dead. 
Fortunately, that is no longer the case. You know, it's a pretty shocking stat, isn't it? And that wasn't too long ago. So yes, we've got people who are growing older, which is fantastic, and this is how we contrast with uh, the all-Australian uh, population. So you can see that the population is you know, pretty much all, all over the place. Um, we are an ageing population. Uh, there is a large mushrooming effect, and we've heard a lot about that. This is when non-Aboriginal people die, usually at the end of a very long life, hopefully, and please, dear God, let us make it wellera uh, so that people are stronger and having uh, a more productive life until the end days. Um, and this is when Aboriginal people die. Okay, so this is, these are the figures from the ABS, and this is, of course, based on death data and hospital data. And so you're still seeing a, a large proportion of children dying, you're seeing people dying all over the shop, and you're seeing people die um, in extended ages as well. So this is the sort of stuff that gets me out of bed in the morning. But the interesting thing about Australia is that over the last 20 years, we've seen an absolute shift in the demography of this land. As I was saying before, in 1788, the place was almost exclusively Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Along the north, we had Malaysian people there, we had some Indonesian people there. We know that there was transfer of people, but generally speaking, the land was Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. And then, of course, that started to change in the 50s, where we started to get this very, very different kind of balancing when we were noticing that there was a disparity. And today, um, we've, we now know that there's an enormous amount of um, diversity in our community. We've had a lot of people coming in to Australia, and we have definitions of who's Australian now. So first-generation Australians are those people who weren't born here. Um, around about 25% um, of our population are first-generation Australians. Um, often in talks, I'll ask people to put their hands up, you know, and, and generally speaking, you get about a quarter of the population in a room, you know, uh, putting their hand up that they're first-generation Australians. Up until recently, it was generally first-generation Australians coming in from Europe. Um, nowadays, uh, it's increasing numbers coming from places like China and India, uh, and the European migration is going down. Second-generation Australians are those who are Australian-born people, but one or more of their parents uh, were born overseas. And again, we've got around about 20% of the population are second-generation Australians. So that means that around about 50% of the Australian population is third generation and beyond. And when we look at those figures and contrast that to how it looked 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, you're seeing quite a distinct difference. That means we have to react differently, we have to play the game differently, and we have to work out what we're doing. When we look at the population pyramids of more recent Australians and third generation Australians, you can actually see there's quite a difference in those age categories and those population groups. This makes a difference to how we need to work within our system. This is, makes a difference in what we need to do with our research because the demographics, 50% of the population is in one side of it, 50% of the population is in the blue. That has an effect on communities, on families, and on culture and how it is we develop through that. So when we look at what we have to do today in contrast to how we were, say, in the post-war years of Australia, is that Australia is no longer primarily a British colony. It's no longer primarily an Anglo-Christian environment. It's no longer primarily a place where people are absolutely dedicated to here. We are now a population of people that have got 
uh, expectations, we've got family who live elsewhere, we've got languages that are vastly different from the Aboriginal languages of the land and English, um, and we actually have to be incredibly flexible. When you layer that on top of technology, you've really got, um, I think, a, an Australian population that is growing and developing in ways it never, ever thought it would uh, be possible to do. The only constant, really, with what we're looking at demographically in Australia and technologically in Australia, of course, is that magical word called change. Oop. And so we've gone from this primarily through to now a very, very different kind of world. That means we have to react differently, we have to approach our work differently, we have to include others in how it is we do our research differently. And honestly, the whole approach to how we work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is not so much about a romanticised past, but how it is we bring culture, how it is we bring the stories and the benefit of being here for such a long time into the narrative, into the discussions and into the world that we share together. So a few questions that I started at the beginning, how do we as a community of health practice work with Aboriginal people and draw on their knowledges and practice for betterment of all Australians? I know a lot of people think about this and they sort of shove it away in the too hard basket. It's not too hard to do. Right. We have our children now learning languages in schools and many of you have probably heard a rendition of Advanced Australia Fair in a Ngunnawal language if you come from here, from Canberra, and it's a time of great pride. But these are things that, you know, questions that we do need to ask because if we can get it right and include worldviews that come from this land, from the history of 60,000 years, the world's oldest continuous culture, that'll make us better at what we do. It's a capability argument as far as I'm concerned. Um, the second question was about thinking through your own history and ways and understanding a culture and seeing how that reflects in your practice with others. And the third is, do you know where you can get some resources to extend your knowledge? So I hope this short talk has just offered a, a few little glances and insights into the sorts of things that I work with, um, the sorts of things that I worry for, and the sorts of things that concern me with regards to how it is we move through our beautiful nation uh, and the changes and the challenges, which are always a good thing. Um, and I'll just leave you on this slide. This is about um, Trudy Marakta and about um, the voice. Um, it is time for us to have some discussions with each other about how it is we are here. Um, and I think it's probably time for us to um, enjoy the benefit of belonging. And that is the responsibility of knowing our history, knowing who we are and being proud as an Australian nation. Thanks for your time. Thank you. <laughs> Take a seat. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lisa, indeed, and some extraordinary data there, which we'll um, get to talk about a little bit later. And thank you for coming along today, because I know you're not well, and you've, you've got through that very well indeed. Moving on to our next speaker, Professor John Christodoulou. Now, Professor John Christodoulou is the Theme Director, Genetics Research Group Leader, Neurodevelopmental Genomics at Murdoch Children's Research Institute, and co-lead Australian Genomics Health Alliance. Quite a title there. And John's uh, address this afternoon is on genomic medicine, preparing Australia for this disruptive technology. Please welcome Professor John Christodoulou. Thanks very much, Virginia. 
Uh, it's a pleasure to be here to um, give you a, a high-level presentation on uh, genomic medicine and where it's at in Australia and what the potential prospects are in terms of embedding it into the Australian healthcare system. Uh, so um, I uh, come from a paediatrics and genetics background, so much of what I'm going to be talk talking about is very much focused on the sort of rare diseases space, uh, um, and so that's the flavour that I'll be bringing to this presentation. And so if we look at um, the approaches that are taken to try and make a diagnosis of one of these rare disorders, uh, it really um, is uh, quite um, a, an odyssey. Um, of course, it begins with the, uh, the initial clinical evaluation, usually some screening tests, maybe some targeted tests. But then uh, ultimately what happens is one needs to drill down and do more sophisticated tests, um, many of which are expensive, um, many of which are intrusive in that you need to take um, biopsies, for instance, from children, which would require general anaesthetics and have the risks associated with that. And then ultimately one might go down a genetic pathway where you're screening one gene after the other to try and identify the cause of, of that child's problem. Um, and that is certainly a very long, expensive uh, and intrusive um, odyssey. Um, with the advent of next generation sequencing though, that's really changed the way the, 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 way the game is played. So people will have heard of the Human Genome Project. Um, that was a, an international initiative, the aim of which was to be able to sequence the human genome. Uh, it came in a couple of years ahead of schedule. Uh, the first human genome cost about $3 billion to sequence, uh, but one of the offshoots of um, the Genome Project was the development of more and more sophisticated approach to um, sequencing the genome. And so um, this um, graph shows how the cost of uh, genetic se uh, or sequencing came down um, over a period of time. And you can see the very rapid drop uh, in the cost of sequencing uh, the genome, such that by about um, mid-2014, um, with new technology that had come on board, it was possible to actually sequence a human genome for about $1,000 US, and that's in terms of reagent costs and so on. So that really opened up the opportunity to be a potential game changer in the way genetics could be used in healthcare. Um, and in particular for rare diseases, that um, genetic needle in a haystack became a whole lot easier to find. And we've certainly been uh, seeing that. Um, uh, this um, can be exemplified by uh, a group of disorders called the mitochondrial respiratory chain disorders, which essentially affect the body's capacity to be able to make energy. Um, the incidence is around one in 5,000, so that uh, as a group of disorders qualifies uh, as a rare disorder. Um, and it, one of the complicating factors is it's a very broad and heterogeneous group of disorders. And so this is one of the classic types of disorder where it can take um, years and years before a diagnosis is made. Uh, there are over now 290 different genes that can cause a mitochondrial disorder. So using a sequential gene-by-gene -gene approach to try and establish a diagnosis um, would be um, a nightmare that you wouldn't want to go down. But what, what this graph here shows with the advent of um, 
next generation sequencing, which really um, started to kick in at around 2010, um, using um, genomic technologies, which are highlighted by the, the green bars, um, we've seen um, a dramatic uh, increase in uh, the number of genes identified as being um, causing a mitochondrial disorder using this technology. So that's about a third of the total um, just in the last seven years. Um, the, and the other important thing to see from that graph is that um, our capacity to define new genetic disorders in this space has not slackened off. You can see that the graph is still going up and that's certainly our um, ongoing experience at the moment. So um, uh, as I said, I'm, I'm in the rare disease space, but I can't escape a presentation about genomics without at least touching on cancer. And um, I think I can be bold enough to say that, that cancer is a disease of the genome. Uh, and uh, there are um, uh, mutations, changes in genes that are so-called driver mutations that are responsible for giving a particular cell or group of cells that growth advantage that makes it flip over into being cancerous. And then there are um, other genes that have variations in them that can modify the, um, the cancer in terms of increasing or decreasing its capacity for um, uh, dissemination and uh, increasing and decreasing its capacity for specific targeted therapies. Um, Amongst all the cancers, there are the, uh, the so-called rare cancers, um, which individually um, are, uh, are classified as having less than six individuals per 100,000 um, involved. But if you lump them all together, that represents about a fifth of all cancer. And similarly, uh, germline cancers or inherited cancers um, typically represent about 5 to 10% of all cancers. So for instance, BRCA1, which is perhaps the most well-known that causes familial breast cancer. And there are over 300 different inherited cancer syndromes. So um, what potentially genomic profiling um, has to offer is firstly um, the institution of targeted therapies and in an earlier presentation today, companion therapies were discussed and this is a classic example of where um, companion therapies may be of particular value. And for the germline cancers, of course, the important thing is if you can identify it, then you're on much stronger ground when it comes to talking to other family members about the inheritance risk, the penetrance, and um, are able to offer more accurate genetic counselling. So uh, what could this kind of technology bring to the healthcare system? Um, well, I've, I've talked about um, faster diagnosis and um, improved prognosis. Um, we've mentioned precision medicine and um, uh, also uh, personalised medicine already uh, during the course of this meeting. And uh, I think in the cancer space, there certainly is, um, uh, there are examples of precision medicine being applied. And then in the longer term, as our understanding improves with regards to the more common and more genetically complex disorders like hypertension and diabetes, we may be able to start to get a, a better handle on uh, prevention of disease risk or modification of disease risk for those more common disorders, which of course take up a big slice of the health budget. Um, I'll say right up front that we're nowhere near that space at the moment with regards to the more common disorders, um, but we're certainly getting a lot of runs on the board with regards to rare disease and, and uh, cancer. So in terms of um, 
uh, where genomics has come from and where it's heading, um, I think it would be fair to say that um, the, the roots of genomic medicine in Australia um, can be traced back to the Melbourne um, experience. And uh, about four years ago, four or five years ago, uh, a number of the major institutes in Melbourne came together recognising the, the value of genomic medicine in potentially delivering in healthcare and started uh, to pool resources to build some pilot data um, to start to demonstrate the utility of this technology. And that um, prompted the Victorian government to come on board um, to um, fund it to a greater degree. And, and that really formed the genesis of what um, morphed into Australian genomics. And so just a little bit about Melbourne genomics. So the, the concept here was could we, at a statewide level, um, implement um, genomic technologies in the clinical setting? So not in a, um, it's um, a research project, but it's very much driven in a clinical practice setting. Uh, and so that meant bringing together groups of individuals who previously um, may not have worked together to develop um, common processes, common clinical consent, common um, analysis of data um, in, uh, in terms of the clinical data, but also the vast reams of genomic sequencing data that were being developed, um, curating, developing um, a, um, a single way of presenting that information in an understandable manner. And, and that meant bringing together teams of people to form these so-called multidisciplinary teams that are, were involved in uh, every one of those steps along the way. And um, an example um, of um, uh, one of the disease um, flagships that was um, studied in this is the so-called childhood syndromes case study. So these were disorders that affected children under the age of two. There were clinical features that led people to strong, strongly suspect that there may be an underlying genetic basis to that. And so what was done was um, these individuals, they had their standard um, diagnostic um, pathway and parallel to that had whole uh, exome sequencing, so a particular type of next generation sequencing um, to see um, and then the, a comparison was made in terms of costs and diagnostic rates and it was possible to do analyses um, to show that so for the usual care pathway a diagnosis was reached in around 11% of cases um, costing around on average $27,000 per case. With um, uh, next generation sequencing um, analysis where it was able to be, if you implemented it early in the diagnostic pathway, um, one was able to achieve five times the number of diagnoses at a quarter of the cost. And I think what surprised people most of all was that in about a third of cases, that actually led to a change in the treatment of that child. So it wasn't just we were able to better provide genetic counselling, it actually led to a change in management. And then following these families further on uh, down the course, um, um, we found that the, in those families where a genetic diagnosis had been reached, um, they were much more likely to go on and have further children um, versus where no diagnosis was made because reproductive confidence had been restored. And that's another you know, very important aspect of all of this. Uh, even if there's not a specific therapy that can be implemented, reproductive confidence and getting people off that diagnostic odyssey are very important. So um, I've talked about Melbourne genomics and that um, led to or, or 
in parallel to that, I guess, um, uh, genomic um, collaboratives came together in other states, including New South Wales, Queensland, EACT, South Australia. Um, there was also a collaborative group very much focused on childhood cancer, the Zero Childhood Cancer Group. And um, so this led to the genesis of, um, if you like, a coalition of the willing called um, the Australian Genomics Collaborative. And um, based on the uh, results of uh, Melbourne Genomics, we um, were able to put together a, an applic application to a targeted call for research to obtain funding for um, the Australian Genomics Health Alliance. And um, Australia was, um, there are a number of challenges and threats and opportunities in, in the Australian health setting um, that need to be considered in embarking on this. Um, firstly, um, of course, we, we know about the divide between the federal and state um, Divide's probably not the right word. The differences um, in the delivery of healthcare through the state and federal systems. Um, that potentially, though, led to duplication of services in states. And um, we're well aware that, um, at least in the genetic testing before the genomic era, there was inequity of access to genetic testing from one state to the next. Um, there were no common um, ethics uh, or consenting approaches around the country. Uh, and um, uh, there was um, difficulty in terms of being able to share data across state jurisdictions. And um, we we're very much aware that um, the, most of the medical and healthcare workforce was not at all tuned in or, or um, knowledgeable with regards to genomic medicine. And so, but the opportunities are, firstly, we have a nationalised health system, so this gave us an opportunity with regards to potentially being able to deliver this technology at a national level. And we already have an, um, people very actively engaged in genomic research and laboratories, NATA accredited laboratories that were starting to offer genomic testing um, activities. Uh, and, um, we already also had linkages in this space, both nationally and internationally. So the time was right to be moving into this space. And so that led to the birth of the Australian Genomics Health Alliance or Australian Genomics. And this is really a five-year um, target um, health services research project um, aimed to, in real time, gather data to be able to demonstrate um, the clinical utility and cost effectiveness of implementing genomic technologies into clinics. And so um, this has um, uh, led to great relationships developing right around the country to, to build this knowledge base. Um, so the, the aim is to move from a research-focused, um, um, very exciting, um, sexy sort of jet jet plane kind of activity to moving it into a more robust clinical um, um, delivery method. Uh, and that um, there were funding implications and really this meant that um, a, a, whole, a whole of system change would need to be put in place if this was going to work with um, engagement and buy-in from a number of uh, area health professionals um, working in various uh, areas in medicine, but importantly also with, in, with the community. And so um, uh, the, the key aim of Australian Genomics is to bring all of that together to demonstrate the cost effectiveness and, and um, clinical utility of genomic testing um, in the Australian context. So um, it's been quite an exercise um, bringing together um, uh, 
80 partner institutions, um, setting up the processes in over 30 different clinical sites. There are 400 investigators involved in this project. Um, and uh, importantly, um, we've um, right from the outset been engaging with the community and um, we have a, um, a very strong community advisory group that I'll, and I'll mention that in a minute. The structure of Australian genomics is built on four pillars um, that I, I won't go into any detail here and um, at the end of my presentation there's a link to the Australian genomics website you can um, uh, go to if you want more information. Um, but it involves gathering the clinical data, applying the genomic data, looking at approaches for being able to federate data at a national level, looking at what are the barriers to implementation, what are the health economic um, opportunities here, and looking at uh, what are the workforce needs and what are the ethical, legal and social issues in the Australian context. So it's a pretty ambitious project. Um, and uh, I think um, we're into our third year now and we're already starting to get runs on the board um, which we're um, very excited about and which we hope will inform government on uh, the way forward um, at a national level. Um, the pillars that um, are being or, or the, the, the focuses that are being used to um, gather the data are two broad flagships called rare disease flagships and cancer flagships um, and these as I said are um, embedded within the clinics um, at every, in um, major hospitals in every state um, to gather the data that needs to be used to inform the other processes of the other three pillars. And I um, obviously don't want you to read all of this, but um, this um, really shows the, the, the breadth of what's happening within Australian genomics. These are the rare disease flagships we currently have running. These are the cancer flagships we currently have running. And this panel here lists the activities that each of these flagships are involved in, in terms of generating the data that we're going to need. And under each of the four programs, there are a number of projects that are currently underway, each addressing specific issues that are relevant to the whole package of being able to um, deliver um, this technology. Um, governance, of course, is crucial. And so these boxes here demonstrate the, um, the various governance um, bodies that we uh, have, um, that have oversight of all of this. And um, we are also very much engaged at a national level um, with the Australian Digital Health Agency and um, at an international level um, with um, the various other um, global activities um, in the genomic space. So there's, there's a lot of activity happening. And I, I just wanted to come back and mention the community advisory group again. Um, th this is, uh, these are the people who are part of the community advisory group and you can see um, they have broad representation across the various um, disease types that we're currently working with and um, they're very active and certainly are across all of the activities that we're involved in and at every step of the way the community advisory group's advice is being sought and, um, and they're certainly not um, slow in being forthcoming with giving that advice which is great. Um, we've also been involved with a number of um, national initiatives um, um, run by the federal government uh, and agencies within the federal government aiming to examine what genomics might look like into the future. Uh, and um, so these are three um, uh, publications that um, 
have been um, released over the last six months or so that really provide um, a roadmap for um, what could and should be happening at a national level. And um, it's really pleasing that these documents and um, input from Australian Genomics um, helped the, the Health Minister um, in his deliberations, and, which ultimately led to uh, the announcement of $500 million being made available over the next decade to see genomics develop into the healthcare system. So we're very excited about what that might look like. Uh, I mentioned uh, linkages and certainly um, Australian genomics is very much, we're not, we are an island, but we're not on our own with regards to um, the questions being posed by genomic technologies. And so we're very much engaged with other international um, uh, efforts in this space, the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health, Genomics England, um, the Global Genomics uh, Medicine Collaborative, and a number of key institutes. So, um, and members of, of Australian Genomics um, are very active members of each of those um, uh, key international organisations. And in fact, several people are in Toronto at the moment at a Global Alliance meeting. So, um, where are we uh, with regards to this uh, in terms of the, um, the Gartner hype cycle that I'm sure you've all seen? And I would like to think that we're sort of somewhere uh, in the slope of enlightenment, um, but others may want to argue that, and I'll be very happy to discuss that either now or, or subsequently. Um, so in conclusion, um, our overall strategy is to um, act locally, um, to um, target developments embedded within the clinics uh, in each of the states. Um, the aim being to recognise or identify what infrastructure would be needed to build this at a national level. But constantly keeping our eye on what's happening internationally, there's no point reinventing the wheel. And so we can certainly learn from what others are doing. And importantly, um, in Australia, we, we are in a rather unique position because we have the best shot at being able to develop something at a truly national level. So the Global Alliance and, and Genomics England are certainly looking with interest at what we're trying to accomplish here. Uh, so I'll stop on that note. Um, that's the, uh, the website for Australian Genomics if you'd like more information and the uh, email contact. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating presentation. And I have a bunch of questions, but we'll leave those for a little bit later. Moving on now to our third speaker in this afternoon's session with a different take. Dr. Ray Monaghan. Now, Ray's uh, presentation is titled Genomics, Personalised Medicine and the Dangers of Overdiagnosis. Ray is a senior research fellow at the Centre for Research in Evidence-Based Practice at Bond University. And he recently won a prestigious NHMRC Early Career Fellowship and is chief investigator with the NHMRC-funded Wiser Healthcare Research Collaboration for Reducing Overdiagnosis. And Ray and I go back a long, long time, 20-plus years. Ray is a former journalist, an award-winning journalist. In fact, we worked together at the ABC at the 7.30 report when he was appointed the National Health Reporter and then went on to work for Four Corners, Australian Financial Review, then left and wrote copious number of books, at least four, and his bestseller, Selling Sickness, of course, which was translated into 12 languages. So it's been a whole new career from journalism to another form of agitation. Please welcome Dr. Ray Moynihan.
Thank you, Virginia. I'm not sure how I feel about agitation, but um, <laughs> perhaps that's a compliment. And I'm not sure if I'd put that arrow quite where John would put it either. <laughs> but, uh, um, and I probably should dis disclose that when I worked at the Financial Review, um, most journalists who had stories on the front page of the Financial Review, if they were covering a company um, and that a story appeared on the front page, the share price would go up. Um, when I had stories about companies on the front page of the Financial Review, <laughs> the share price went the other way. So just to give you a taste uh, of, of where we're going here in the next, uh, this final plenary for today, the structure of my talk will be what is overdiagnosis? Some of you may be familiar with this concept, some of you won't, so I want to just give a very uh, gentle, general introduction to this rather alarming health challenge that we're discovering. Um, what's driving this problem? And then a little bit about genomics, personalised medicine and the danger of overdiagnosis. Um, in the interest of disclosure, I'm funded by NHMRC. I have a, also have a contract with Cochrane Australia to host a podcast. Uh, I'm a former journalist. Um, please don't hold that against me too much. An author and a, have a long-time interest in too much medicine. And this is the really important caveat here. Unlike John and, and many others, I have no experience or training in genomics. And that may well show in what I'm about to say. Um, my understanding of genomics is it's the study of the total genetic material of an individual. Um, when I was asked to give a talk like this, I had to think hard about whether it was appropriate for someone like me to stand up and talk uh, for 20 minutes about genomics. Given our work on overdiagnosis and given what myself and colleagues see as the extraordinary hype about this new technology and this new change coming, I think the decision was that there was a responsibility to start to try and bring some sobriety, if you will, uh, to this area. So, so that's the reason I'm standing up here talking today. Um, what is overdiagnosis? It, it happens when you get a diagnosis, it ends up causing more harm than good. Uh, it happens when a healthy person's diagnosed with a disease that won't harm them. I know this sounds bizarre and counterintuitive, but I will show you some evidence. Um, and it's an unnecessary diagnosis that leads to unnecessary care and waste resources that could be better spent addressing genuine need, and, and there is a lot of genuine need around. Um, some examples of overdiagnosis, briefly, I'll go into them a little bit more, but just briefly, this happens in prostate cancer, breast cancer, thyroid cancer, and, and a number of non-cancers as well we'll talk about, but uh, perhaps 15, uh, 17 to 50% of cancers detected via PSA screening are overdiagnosed, would not have gone on to harm that man. Uh, with breast cancer, believe it or not, and I'll show you some data in a minute, perhaps 20% of the cancers detected by breast cancer screening are overdiagnosed cancers. They would never have harmed the woman. Um, thyroid cancer, we have a real problem. We have a global epidemic. We have perhaps more than half a million people across 12 nations in the last two decades unnecessarily diagnosed with, with small thyroid cancers. Um, it's been described as a modern epidemic. And, um, and of course, this is my area, so you've got to discount some of the hype that I'm bringing to this too. But let me, let me go, walk, walk through it a bit more. What's driving this? Well, diagnostic technology, valuable, sophisticated, fantastic diagnostic technology that can find the early signs of disease can also see ever smaller abnormalities, some of which, many of which, are either uncertain or even harmless. 
This is the, the, the conundrum we're dealing with. Um, expanding disease definitions are also one of the key drivers. Uh, definitions of disease aren't sent down by God. They're, they're decided by groups of people in, in hotel rooms, much like this sort of room. And, and unfortunately, they're being widened all the time. And they're labelling more and more people with milder problems or lower risks of ever actually becoming ill. Uh, and of course, we are screening to find the early signs of disease across a number of conditions. And again, we've all been brought up to believe that early detection is the best medicine. But the facts are that early detection is a double-edged sword. Um, so perhaps you can get a sense of why genomics might add to this problem. Um, let's talk briefly about thyroid cancer. This is the uh, source of those figures I gave before. Um, Korea is used in it as an example. This is the incidence of thyroid cancer in Korea in the last uh, couple of decades in South Korea. Um, largely being considered now um, a, a particularly egregious example of overdiagnosis. You see the incidence soaring there, um, mainly driven by the incidence of these small thyroid cancers. And al along the bottom there, if you can see that, you see mortality staying es essentially the same. This is suggestive of large amounts of unnecessary diagnosis. And certainly that's how it's been understood. Uh, and there's been strong reactions within Korea to this graph and strong campaigns, in fact, in, in recent years to try and turn that around, which, which apparently are becoming effective. We have a similar problem here. Nowhere near as dramatic as Korea. This is the last few decades in Australia. We've seen huge increases in thyroid cancer. Again, largely driven by those small cancers, is my understanding, um, and, and uh, a very flat line in terms of mortality. And uh, doing a lot of work, I, I acknowledge my colleagues at Wiser Healthcare, some of the data's come from them. We're doing a lot of work on thyroid cancer at the moment. Um, this was the group in the New England Journal a couple of years ago who did some work estimating, uh, this is all estimation, from comparing the expected increases in, in thyroid cancer with the uh, reported uh, increases in thyroid cancer and doing estimates across 12 nations over two decades. And they came up with this extraordinary figure of more than 500,000 people, uh, far more women than men. Um, includes 10,000 people overdiagnosed in Australia. Um, the potential harms here are the anxiety of an unnecessary cancer label, unnecessary surgery, damage to voice and lifelong medication. And of course, once one receives the diagnosis of cancer, it would be an extremely brave person to, to resist treatment. So, that, so, that, so the challenge is how to reduce the unnecessary diagnosis. Um, Breast cancer overdiagnosis. When I first started in overdiagnosis about five or six years ago, someone started talking to me about the overdiagnosis of breast cancer. I didn't believe them. I just didn't believe them. I couldn't believe that, that this would be a phenomenon. Um, I, I had been led to believe that the breast screening program was about saving lives. It, it certainly is. Um, but the data on breast cancer overdiagnosis has been growing uh, in the last decade or so. And a large independent review was conducted, led by Sir Michael Marmot, who some of you may know, a rather good epidemiologist and, and otherwise generally good fellow. Um, big independent review in Britain, pushed by the cancer establishment, I should say. Um, estimated, lots of uncertainty in the science, but estimated perhaps that screening was bringing a 20% reduction in breast cancer deaths. But also, 
that the biggest harm of screening was overdiagnosis. And perhaps 19% of cancer detected through the life of a screening program were cancers that would not have gone on to cause any harm to those women. Um, prostate cancer, much more familiar story. I think many of you may know this story already, but, but data from the uh, US Preventive Services Task Force, large, uh, large gap in that estimate. Obviously, the science is very uncertain, but whichever estimate you take, a significant problem. And there's similar data from Australia, I should say, coming very soon. I was going to release it today, but I feared that someone might tweet it. So, um, but there is very, very alarming data from the Australian setting about the numbers of men who are receiving unnecessary prostate cancer diagnosis coming very soon from colleagues in Wiser Healthcare. That, this is not just a problem in cancer, it's a problem across many conditions. There's been an ongoing series in the British Medical Journal which has taken a huge interest in this problem. Um, we see this problem with pul pul pulmonary embolism where we're treating uh, obviously a very deadly condition but, but my understanding is that we're treating very, very small clots, many of which may in fact be harmless. Uh, lots of work going on there. Chronic kidney disease very uh, serious controversy there over whether we've defined that way too wide. And I'll get to that more in a minute. ADHD, many of you know some of the controversy about, again, whether the disease has been expanded to such an extent that we're labelling uh, uh, ordinary behaviour. Gestational diabetes, big debate going on about that. I'll talk about in a minute. High blood pressure as well. Um, when the recent changes to the definition of high blood pressure came out late last year, I should say the, high, the, the blood pressure in our unit went up quite a lot. Um, so it's just some examples there, so some more details. Chronic kidney disease, in 2002, CKD was essentially created. And the prevalence estimates of this went from a very, very small, rather rare condition to something like one in eight people. Um, that 1.7% is just one estimate. CKD didn't exist, so it's hard to sort of show a change. But uh, nevertheless, there is big debate going on now about whether that has been set too wide. And there are growing numbers of researchers who are showing that many of the people defined as having chronic kidney disease under this definition uh, have no disease, kidney or otherwise, a chronic or acute. And there is a real push to try and uh, reform that that definition. Gestational diabetes, similarly a 2010 change to the diagnostic processes there, saw the prevalence among pregnant women skyrocket, almost triple. Uh, high blood pressure, as, as some of you or many of you may know, late last year groups in the, in the United States, uh, at, at the flick of a, a switch or a, something or other, press on a button on a computer, changed the definition of high blood pressure. So it went from 32% of US adults to 46% of US adults overnight being defined as, as having high blood pressure. In all of these and in many other conditions, there's growing global controversy and conflict within medicine over these expansions. And you have doctors' groups split. The American Academy of Family Physicians rejected 
that change in the high blood pressure definition. You now have two definitions of high blood pressure. Uh, same with gestational diabetes. Uh, the, the NIH had a consensus conference a few years ago and rejected the new definition of gestational diabetes. So when we talk about diseases, when we talk about conditions, we've got to remember they are highly controversial now, many of them, about where we draw the line. So if we're using genomics to test for disease risk, which definitions are we using? Um, Briefly, what's driving uh, overdiagnosis? Cultural beliefs. We did a review in the B published in the BMJ, led by my colleague Tanya Patharana. Uh, systematically went through the literature. Uh, this is what we came up with: a, a, a whole lot of drivers and a whole lot of potential solutions. You'd be familiar with some of these cultural beliefs that more is better. Financial incentives driving more, increasingly sensitive tests and technology that can find these abnormalities. Doctors' fear of missing disease. Public expectations that doctors will do something. What might help fix this stuff? Public awareness. Reforming incentives from quality to quantity. More rigorous evaluation of tests and disease definitions is one of the suggested strategies. And this is what I'll get to in a minute. What I'm hearing what we're hearing from a lot of the promotion of genomics is that we need not more rigorous evaluation, but changes in evaluation, and some would say a watering down of evaluation, and I think this is a really uh, important thing to, to, to talk about. Education and shared decision-making, other solutions. And leading groups in Australia want action on overdiagnosis. This is not just now a research issue, it's become a policy uh, demand. There are calls for a national action plan in Australia to address overdiagnosis signed by leading professional and consumer organisations, including some of the leading colleges, the leading consumer groups, public organisations like the Commission on Safety and Quality. This, you'll be hearing a lot more about this. There's a paper in press coming out very soon. Uh, this is a major challenge to Australia's health and the health system. Um, it's also a global problem. The BMJ and others have made too much medicine a global issue. Uh, a few years ago, they launched a campaign. Against a backdrop of growing evidence and concern about overdiagnosis and too much medicine, we have an aggressively promoted new, new diagnostic technology that has the capacity to instantly turn every person into a patient. We need for caution about hyping the benefits of genomics and personalised medicine, many of which remain uncertain. We, we need to be cautious about ignoring potential harms, including overdiagnosis, and we need to be cautious that innovation doesn't threaten evaluation. Uh, the Australian Council of Learned Academies report, um, which, which John mentioned too, um, came out earlier this year. My and my colleagues' reading of this report was probably a little different from John's. Um, I think that, that that report hyped benefits, I think it played down harms, and I think it posed, in some senses, a threat to existing evaluation systems. I felt, and others felt, and I've written about this, that there were, it was more a celebration of this new technology rather than a cautious weighing of the benefits and harms come back to that in a while. But alongside all the hype about genomics and personalised medicine, there is a healthy scepticism in the literature. And, and it stresses the uncertainty around the benefits, points to possible harms, and highlights needs for rigorous evaluation. And I just want to briefly walk through a little bit of that healthy scepticism, because I think it helps uh, uh, to give some balance here. 
Professor Brenda Wilson from the University of Ottawa is among the scientists raising many important questions. This is one of the lines that struck me quite dramatically uh, in, in my reading a, a year or two ago. Up to two-thirds of the so-called mutations found may be misclassified and carry lower or no meaningful, clinically meaningful pathogenicity. In other words, there's still enormous uncertainty around the meaning of these, many of these clinical vari uh, of genetic variants. There's concern about overdiagnosis resulting from genetic diagnosis of a condition that would never have manifested over the course of a lifetime. And of course, this is, I mean, to, to make the, the, the distinction between, I think, what I'm talking about, what John was talking about, I understand that a lot of John's work is with people who have rare conditions. And I think the concern here is about using this technology to go after healthy populations, which I think is a very different uh, part of this story. Uh, I think I'm right in saying that, but um, uh, this is, again, a fascinating debate in the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology. Anyone interested in genomics, if you haven't read this series of papers, please do. It's so educative. It's, it's, a, it's a to and fro, it's a debate. Uh, Brenda Wilson's there, others there. Uh, last year in the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology, Brenda and others wrote, new highly sensitive diagnostic and screening technology can cause harms from false positives and overdiagnosis. Whole genome sequencing is not ready for use outside research, was their view needs rigorous evaluation using evidence-based medicine. The allure of a new understanding of biology can't be sufficient to exempt genome-based precision medicine from social requirements for evidence. I think this is very, very powerful. It's sobering. It's raising red flags. Um, this, is, this is a piece that Chris Simsarian, Chris Simsarian and I had in the BMJ. I, I think I'm, I'm going to be running out of time soon, so I won't really go through this one. Um, but, uh, but, but again, uh, Chris Simsarian, unlike myself, is someone with a large amount of genomics and genetics experience in the, in the cardiovascular world. He sees enormous benefits for the limited number of circumstances where, where there's proof of benefit, but he's greatly concerned about using this technology to target the healthy. This is, a, I, I think I'm right in saying, an important study, very highly cited 2014 study in JAMA uh, that involved the whole uh, genome sequencing of 12 volunteers. Again, um, Chris and others have pointed out the importance of this because among these 12 volunteers, they found, the researchers found a median of five disease risk findings per person. They found a median of three genetic variants of uncertain significance per person. And, and after physician review, one to three initial follow-up tests and referrals per person. Now, I'm imagining that other people are standing up at conferences in other parts of the world and hailing this as a great victory for genomics, at the same time as I'm suggesting that this raises concerns about, about unnecessary diagnosis and uncertainty. I'm influenced heavily by my boss, of, of course, uh, that, that, uh, that goes without saying. He's a guy called Paul Glasiew, and he warns that genetic testing of healthy people is a looming disaster that the world is very unprepared for. Um, he, he told me that in a podcast that we run called The Recommended Dose. It's intuitive that early detection should be better, that more information should always be better, but the overdiagnosis pattern teaches that, that earlier isn't always better. 
will genomics and precision medicine help cancer patients? There's a guy called Vinay Prasad um, who's, who's, who's become, I think, known for his sceptical approach. To, he's an oncologist out of the US. He's becoming known globally for his sceptical approach to uh, uh, precision medicine. His review of the data published in Nature uh, two years ago suggests that most people with cancer don't benefit from this new precision strategy, nor has this approach yet been shown to improve outcomes in, in controlled trials. At best, we may expect short-lived responses in a tiny fraction of patients with the inevitable toxicity of targeted therapies and the inflated costs that this approach guarantees. Uh, we're very excited to say that we're bringing Vinay Prasad to Australia next year for the Preventing Overdiagnosis Conference. So if you disagree with some of his views and his analysis of the data, there will be plenty of chance to debate that next year, we hope. When considered objectively, the prospects and potential for precision oncology are sobering. There are limits of precision medicine, and, and this is fairly, uh, fairly clear, that the enthusiasm for precision medicine can... Uh, the enthusiasm that precision medicine can improve population health is premature. This is uh, a couple of folk writing in the New England Journal two years ago. Um, obviously, we need to improve living conditions and inequality to improve public health. Too much focus on precision medicine may be a distraction. Um, again, others are calling for a much more rigorous, a, a kind of rigorous approach to this. There are increasing numbers of applications that are going to save lives and prevent disease, but two systematic reviews recently clearly show an insufficient evidence base for large-scale rollout, large-scale implementation of genomic medicine at this point. And, and this author uh, from the CDC, I think, in the US, stressed the need for more rigorous evaluation. This is perhaps one of the most controversial uh, areas, but people like John Ioannidis, who some of you may know, one of the most important scientists alive, I would argue, is already suggesting that genomics may be part of a failed narrative. This was a paper in JAMA two years ago. Again, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. There's been a common narrative that combining genetics with information technology will bring transformative improvements in health. This JAMA paper says that despite the billions being put in here, we're not seeing there's little evidence of actual improvements. And they concluded that this approach has largely failed. Improvements in health are due to public health and prevention works such as anti-smoking. John Ioannidis is also about to appear in one of our podcasts. He's a Stanford and Harvard professor. He's published almost a thousand papers. Um, I asked him about genomics. He said, we've achieved a lot of information gathering. We have a pretty solid knowledge base about it. I'm increasingly skeptical about its utility. Mm. I couldn't believe it when John Ioannidis said this. He, he's a global authority on genomics. There's something going on. This is the report from the, um, the, the Australian Council of Learned Academies. It plays down the uncertainty. It, there's not one mention of the problem of overdiagnosis. And I think, and others think, this is encouraging a watering down of regulation. I'm cognizant of the debate that went on this afternoon, a fascinating debate, a rich and interesting debate about whether we can, we can adapt and improve and become more sophisticated in our uh, assessment and reimbursement of new technologies. But I think what we're seeing here is a very blunt attempt to water down 
existing regulations. This report has multiple, I'm not going to go through them, multiple attempts to suggest that we need to change regulatory approaches. They're too cumbersome, their randomised trials are problematic, and it, and it talks about a need to reduce, uh, uh, reduce evaluation. There are some nuances and caveats in this report uh, where you get a sense uh, that there are going to be some harms and some costs approach to this. And they do call for cost-effectiveness studies and, as John said, the examination of social, legal and ethical implications and more community dialogue. But it's my view that the rapid expansion of genomics and precision medicine will definitely bring benefits to the industry selling it, but whether most Australians and the health system will similarly win is a lot less certain at this point. Um, I think uh, we need the evidence suggesting we need to, ex to improve health regulation, not water it down. We need more caution, less celebration. We need more research on potential harms. And, 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 and just to invite you all, genomics will be a feature of the Preventing Overdiagnosis Conference next year, uh, which will take place in Sydney in December. Um, thank you very much for the invitation. Thanks to my colleagues and thanks for listening. Cheers. Well, um, <clears throat> once an investigative journalist, always an investigative <laughs> journalist, I think. Um, I'm kind of glad that uh, the very sensible Lisa and I are sitting between you two <laughs> right now. <laughs> Look, I, I, Ray, th that was just quite fascinating and, and mind-blowing, and I have a million questions, but I, I have to throw directly to you, John, and I, I'd be, well, we're all very interested to hear your response to Ray's um, very well-researched caution. So people may be surprised when they hear that I'm not disagreeing with a lot of what Ray has been talking about. Um, we're kind of talking about different things. Um, what I've been very much focused on is talking about individuals who already have a disorder, a disease, and using the technology to get a better handle on what the cause of that disease is with the ultimate aim that that might translate to specific treatment or modification of management. Um, uh, uh, and I, I did say in, uh, in my presentation that I think we're a long, long way from this technology ever being able to get close to the com kind of more common disorders that, that Ray was touching on. Um, I think one of the big issues, and I should also mention, uh, Ray, that um, Brenda and Chris are both members of Australian Genomics, so they'll keep us honest. Um, uh, one of the um, confounding issues in all of this has been the um, um, uh, uh, proliferation of, of what I call um, recreational genomics. So the 23andMe kind of stuff that um, is being delivered to individuals without any appropriate um, counselling before, during or after. Um, and quite frankly, often what they're delivering is, is if not rubbish, it's wrong. Um, and there have been studies to demonstrate that. So um, I don't think we're too far off the page in terms of where we're coming from. I must say, though, as you were speaking uh, about the, the um, Australian Genomics, the Health Alliance and the collaboration and also the funding, $500 million, half a billion bucks, it's a lot of money, um, and I'm thinking, gosh, this is moving so quickly. This has obviously got some really strong political clout behind it. Um, and then when we hear Ray, uh, I find myself thinking, oh my goodness, we need to slow this right down. 
we need to put the brakes on. Um, whilst you say you're not disagreeing, do you accept, though, that perhaps in uh, that the political clout that, that the Alliance has, hence the collaboration, the funding support, uh, is perhaps um, a little bit um, overexcited at the moment by the potential without really understanding the downside, the risks? Sure. I, I think um, there's always a risk of that. Um, however, um, I don't think the minister is a fool uh, and he uh, would not enter into making decisions as profound as the ones that he did without seeking advice from multiple sources and not just taking information from one um, source of information. Um, and again, I, just to, to reinforce, um, I'm, I don't know what um, the mandate will be for, for this half a, million, half a billion dollars. Um, a, a committee has been formed um, that I understand has a six-month life that is um, designed to establish what the governance of this will be and what the agenda will be of how that funding should be spent. Uh, how that funding should be spent, and there are very key people involved in that. For instance, Ian Fraser is is the chair of that working group. Uh, so, um, and again, um, you know, the focus that we've been involved in and which is where we're coming from in terms of the clinic is individuals who have a disease and how best can we meet their needs in terms of establishing a diagnosis and where available implementing appropriate therapies. Ray, what has captured the imagination so much about genomics though that has, you know, hence the funding, the support, the excitement about the future and the fast pace of movement, what is it? Hmm. Uh, look, I, I'm not a philosopher or an ethicist, but, but my immediate response is that um, we love new things. I think there's something new and very shiny about this. I think, I think people like John are at the coalface where they're seeing the real benefits, the potential benefits, to help people who are genuinely ill. Um, I think what I and others in, in the wiser healthcare world are worried about is when this technology starts to be uh, applied to, to the worried well, to the healthy. Um, and I think, I think I'm right in saying that there is a, there is a pattern, and, and regulators here would know far better than me, that, that often, often new technologies, or new, new tests, new, new pills, new technologies, once they work in, in, in that small, limited set of people, there's a natural there's a, there's a natural sense, particularly on the role of the promoters of this, to roll that out more broadly. And I think managing that, managing that move, that demand, that natural demand. I mean, I also think there's a lot of money to be made telling healthy people they're sick. Mm. Um, and, 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 and following the money is just something that, that, that one does. I'm not sure that you listed in your list of reasons there uh, the, the commercial imperative. No, they're certainly there. They're, they're, there's, That's they're, the there's, biggest driver, isn't it? Well, I, I mean, yes, it's a driver, but I think there's also the, the genuine good intentions of clinicians wanting to do the best they can for patients and health systems wanting to be seen to be facilitating the introduction of valuable new technology. But, but, but I think the history of medicine 
suggests that we need to be more cautious than we are being. Just because this is new, just because there might be some runs on the board for small groups of, 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 of people, uh, does, does not mean that we need to start rolling this out. We, there, you know, there, are, there are services that are being offered to Australians now uh, where you can go along and get your whole genome tested. And I think some people say that that's inappropriate, that that's not ready for prime time yet. It's not ready. It shouldn't be out of the lab, so to speak. So I think, I think managing this is going to be very challenging. Um, but, yeah. Lisa, does this worry you? It does. I love the possibilities of being able to rapidly identify a problem and deal with it with bespoke medicines, for example. But what also worries me is that when we look at health disparities and subpopulation health, that some of the simplest things on earth um, seem to be absolutely impossible for people to get. So for example, simple treatment for rheumatic heart disease. It is not expensive. And here we are spending half a billion dollars, no criticism, Okay. But we're spending half a billion dollars on putting together something which is very exciting mm. but could blossom into something which becomes so overwhelming but we still leave large segments of communities and populations behind when what they're really after is something that costs a couple of hundred bucks mm. or a health worker to peer in their ears and mm. stick a few grommets in or, you know, mm. where we have to remember this in context, you know, it's people aren't machines, people don't live in laboratories, people don't necessarily have conscious bits lurking in test tubes yet. Hmm. <laughs> there are human beings out there in community hmm. that have great needs and, hmm. and when, I don't think we're paying enough attention to that. Um, I think we need to do a little bit of balancing and, and understand where this uh, could go and the excitement of it, but recognise that there, there need to be caveats and cautions and bringing people along for the journey. That being said, I think also the community um, should have input into this and that's why I'm really excited to hear that we've got consumer people we'll mm. be talking a bit later. But, you know, we, we tend to forget when we get excited about our research and what it is we're doing that at the end of the day we're there to serve the people, right? We are there not for our own careers or you know, our, our organisations, but we are there to serve the Australian people. And mm. if we keep coming back to that and remembering to bring the community along with us by talking with them, consulting with them, and understanding clearly what they want and what they need, I think the balance will, will help. When we, and it's a really important point, but bringing the community along, I, I'm not sure, Ray, I might have got this wrong, but did you say that a, a, a civilian can get a genomic testing done for what, about a thousand bucks or something now? I you think my, what I was thinking of was genome one out of Sydney where I think it's about 6,000 oh, okay. but John would know better than I. Yeah. But yeah. for someone with a bit of money who's curious um, it, it's almost like taking the you know well, I guess taking your own health into your own hands and there's something kind of shiny and exciting about that too and as a consumer if one could afford that it seems like an empowering thing to do but it might also be a, um, a dangerous thing to do. So, you know, whilst the consumer element is so important, it also can be giving a little bit too much latitude to the consumer if we have access to this technology directly. Yeah, I mean, Ray mentioned the worried well, and that is certainly something that needs to be very carefully dealt with. And much of it revolves around appropriate 
education and understanding of the community of what the technology really can deliver and what it can't deliver, what's hype and what's not. Mm. And I absolutely agree that um, using this technology for um, the worried world mm. is a complete waste of everyone's resources and creates a, a lot of angst and unnecessary potential for unnecessary testing that um, would not have happened uh, if that technology wasn't used in that kind of way. I'd like to throw this open to questions and I'm sure some of you will have some, some questions here and we do have a, a little bit of time for that, so please just jump behind the microphone. I want to come back though to one of the, um, the, the uh, graphs that you used, Lisa, which was absolutely startling because I thought you were showing us a graph of um, Indigenous, uh, the Indigenous population in Australia and the death graph, and I mm -hmm. thought, yes, well, that looks quite normal, yes, everyone dies when they're 18 and blah, blah, blah. And then I realised that was actually the Australian graph you were showing as the non-Indigenous, and then when you put up the Indigenous one, yep. it was very, very different. Very different. Now, uh, I, I find that horrifying, mm. and I you can't should. help but go back to the mm. money spend and what you just said. There's a, we've got a bit of a disconnect going on here, haven't we? Yeah, we do, especially when we recognise that a lot of Aboriginal people live in large urban centres and regional centres mm. where the nice big shiny hospitals are. Um, and so you can't sort of say remoteness is the cause for this mm. because it's not just remote people mm. that are, are dying of a younger age. When we look at the kind of death rates and the things that people are dying of and recognising that a lot of this is preventable and a lot of this has everything to do with social determinants of health. That is education. If people have an education, they may often make different choices. You know, they can break the cycle of disadvantage. If people have the opportunities for jobs, if they don't suffer racism on a moment by moment for some basis, if people are able to feel good and strong and in control of their lives, the locus of control is here, if they've got decent housing and you can turn on the taps and, you know, not have overcrowding, all of these really daggy things make a massive difference in people's lives. We know the majority of Aboriginal people who are at university today, for example, are first in family. Mm. That changes not just a family but an entire community for life if you can grow a graduate. And so when we're talking about looking at deaths, still at this day and age we've got this happening across the entire spectrum of age. Mm. Right? Mm. Sure, we might be tweaking around the edges with the young kids and that makes a massive difference to those families. But we're just pushing everything to slightly the older ages, mm. you know, so we've now got more teenagers dying, we've got more older people dying, so it, it just bumps on. We haven't really gripped up what this means. You mentioned Michael Marmot before, you know, he's done some remarkable work on social determinants of health and still we haven't really taken that message on board properly. What I was trying to demonstrate in my presentation was that the Aboriginal population is now being swamped by the needs of other large populations as well. We, we, we have to really work hard to make sure that we look after the most vulnerable in our communities. You know, and I really don't want Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to be left behind, especially in this new age and the opportunities that the work that people in this room are doing. It's a wonderful theme for Reconciliation Week, don't uh, let history be a mystery, it works beautifully. We'll take a, a couple of questions and try to keep them brief if you would. Hello, Joe Gross from NPS, uh, also a public health pharmacist and a consumer with a germline predisposition. Um, thank you to all the speakers, but my question is for John and for Ray. Is it possible that the sweet spot is where the precision medicine of genetics meets the, the potential pitfalls of overdiagnosis as a result of population screening? Could genetic and genomics 
genetic testing and genomics help us recognise the so-called false positives and not offer the treatment which causes the harm? And could we also um, use genetics to target our population screening so you're not screening wider populations and getting as many false positives? Beautiful question. Thank you very much. Uh, look, John, you take that first. Yeah, so um, a, a lot of that comes down to having as, as, as detailed an understanding as possible about what you need to be looking at for when you're doing a genomic test. Uh, and um, there's a whole field of pharmacogenomics, uh, for instance, where um, you can identify changes in certain genes that are involved in metabolising drugs um, that can influence um, whether a drug should be used in a particular individual in the first place, and um, if so, that knowledge can help adjust the dose that might be appropriate. So some people may benefit from having a lower dose or a higher dose. Um, I think uh, the problem or the issue with pharmacogenomics at this point in time is it's still at a very early stage um, and still very much in the research arena with a few exceptions where there have been clear benefits identified. So it, it, it does come down to um, knowledge uh, and being able to apply it um, appropriately. Um, and, but you, know, you start with research but often something comes up that can be very rapidly translated into clinical utility and then moved into that space. Right. Yeah, just, just briefly, I mean, I think that, again, I think there's great potential for that to happen. And in fact, the National Cancer Institute in, in DC, in, in the United States, which has acknowledged uh, that, not only acknowledged that overdiagnosis is a huge and real issue in cancer, but it's actually made a research priority. Uh, there's a great guy there called Barry Kramer who's, who's helped push that. They are doing a lot of work on exactly what you, you raise, trying to identify, trying to understand whether or not the genomic, the knowledge from genomics can actually help us identify which cancers are going to go on to kill and which aren't. And that, again, I think I'm, is right, is fair to say, it's, it's very nascent. It's very early days, but there may be a potential, yes. Thank you very much. Wonderful question. We'll take, uh, I think you were next, sir, and then the last question from here. Thank you. Yeah, Paul Meskins, GP. I have an interest in the topic because of sharpening the sword with respect to risk factor modification, which is similar to the uh, previous speaker, because the vast numbers of the vast numbers of people we treat with blood pressure drugs and statins for many years, probably most of them kind of die from something else anyway. Um, and my question is about how long do you think it'll be? You mentioned it's all research, but how long do you think it'll be before we will be able to better risk stratify the people who are genuinely at risk of premature death from heart disease and stroke, etc., using genomics? Has someone got a crystal ball for me? <laughs> um, I think um, that, that's um, an almost impossible question to answer. Um, our, our understanding is really at such, in terms of these more common complex disorders where you have an overlay of multiple genetic variations, each exerting a small effect with major environmental uh, and, and um, lifestyle factors imp uh, influencing that. This is exactly the area where um, we just don't have the knowledge base at all and I, you know, I couldn't predict whether it'll be 5, 10, 15 years before um, we're anywhere near that, if, if ever. 
but we're working on the crystal ball. <laughs> We've got the money. <laughs> Thank you very much. It was a very good question too. And, and last question over here. Hello, uh, Winston Leo, medicine-wise, and also a practicing medical oncologist. So in that role, I'm dealing almost on a daily basis now with patients requesting uh, the recreational uh, version of the genomics uh, testing, both for germline and somatic testing, obviously, with solid tumour patients. Um, one of the issues for me in that space partly is around the reports that we receive, and you, you've already alluded to this, that um, there's no standardisation, often there's nonsense, they're difficult to interpret, particularly when we're dealing with polygenic uh, processes. But also, even for the quasi-literate medical practitioner, um, the issue of health literacy for the consumer side of things in understanding the issues around the genetic testing and the flow-on effects as well. It's not just the right to test, but the right to try that flows on where I might not have a drug or access to a drug or the patient may not be able to afford a drug or find a trial afterwards are things that I think need to be addressed uh, by the genomics community. Thank you very much. So you're addressing your question in particular to? Uh, Professor Krista Dulu and Dr Moynihan. Thank you. Um, there is uh, no doubt that um, um, there is great variability in um, reporting forms for genetic and genomic tests if, uh, across different um, diagnostic centres. And in fact, um, in recognition of this, one of the pieces of work that we're implementing at the moment is we've called together a working group to try and standardise the language around um, uh, defining or speaking about a genetic variation and standardising potentially the approach to how that might be delivered um, in terms of a report. And that's going to be particularly important um, as my health record rolls out and these reports will ultimately make their way onto my health record. The Australian Digital Health Agency is certainly very keen to see that happen. So there's a lot of work to be done in making sure we can get the language right and educate the health, uh, work, health workforce and the general community about um, these um, reports and what they mean and what they don't mean and how they can be interpreted. Ray, I, I will get you to respond to this question too. Also, given your background as a journalist and language and communication, clear communication being such an important part of that, um, I'd be interested to hear your response to that. Yeah, I mean, look, I, 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 don't, I don't know enough about oncology to, to really give you a clear answer, but, but if I can just go back to Johnny Anidis here, because I think he, he is someone that I think is respected globally. He's been working on genomics for, for 10 or 20 years. He's a true believer in the potential from genomics, but his analysis of the data is that he is becoming increasingly sceptical about the ultimate utility. And I think there was a lot of talk before about taking leaps and the need to leap and being disrupted and the need to leap. But I think before we leap, we want to know a little bit more about whether there's alligators there um, and, and how deep the water is um, and, and remind ourselves that we're standing on a very good, solid platform in Australia. We have Medicare. We have this extraordinary system. We have these world-class systems of, of currently of regulation and assessment. Um, do we really need to accede to the demands of those who want us to disrupt all that? Mm. often for their own private profit. Mm. I, think, I think we really we really need to think 
much more soberly about this and remind ourselves what an extraordinary system we already have here. Mm. So. You know, very good point. And I've swum with alligators. It's the ones with teeth <laughs> that you worry about. Thank you for that question. Um, I am going to have to call an end to this session. I'm going to get our panellists to stay here for a moment. But would you please warmly welcome, for a fascinating discussion, John, Lisa and Ray. I'll get you to stay here. Thank you.